You are listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. Having the right tool is half of any job, my dad used to tell me. Now, I didn't believe him until I tried to repair some IKEA furniture after years of use. I never thought to keep those little wrenches, those little Allen keys, you know, and years later when the bed frame starts to wobble or the chair legs get loose, you spend half a day looking through drawers trying to find those tools. And then I spend the other half of the day trying to see if a Phillips screwdriver can do the job. I now see the wisdom in what my dad was saying all these years later. Having the right tools helps guarantee some level of success with whatever it is you're trying to do. Now, this rule applies to so many things in life, not just the assembly of boxed furniture. Life requires assembly. Life requires the building and the fixing of our relationships, of our hopes, our dreams, and even our faith at many times. Having the right tools can make all the difference. But I'm also the type of person who has owned probably 15 different toolboxes over the years. I can go into my shed at any given time and find four of them still there. But the ridiculous part isn't the quantity, it's their contents. If you were to open any of them, you would discover all manner of screws, nails, the odd wrench, sandpaper, some pens, I bet even a box of matches in each one. But you'll notice the absence of proper tools, including... Ikea Allen keys. Now to find those, you're going to have to search. I have unconsciously hidden them all over my house. Currently, I have a hammer leaning against our dryer. There's another hammer downstairs in the basement by the freezer from when I tried to pry open frozen hamburger patties apart with the screwdriver. Oh yeah, that's where that is. I've been looking for that screwdriver. I would put it with the others, uh, but they're probably located in the top drawer of the bathroom vanity. There's several in one of the many, quote, junk drawers in our kitchen, everywhere except where you'd expect to find them, a toolbox. And these are good tools, but they're in the wrong place and always at the wrong time. When I need them, I can't find them. Now, I I never really think to collect these and put them in my toolbox, except when I need them. And then it's like, oh, you know what? I should just, oh, it drives me nuts. Now, I know this isn't everyone's problem. There are probably people listening, rolling your eyes, thinking, oh my gosh. I know this isn't everyone's problem, but the analogy is. I was recently having a conversation with someone who is in a very difficult relationship. We were talking about how sometimes it's difficult to love, especially when the person you care for is constantly hurting you. I related to an estranged relationship that I've had over the years. And the cliche just rolled off my lips, but it fit perfectly. I said, you know, we don't love because it's easy. We love because it's right. It's a statement that I'm sure we'd all agree with. But what does it mean? When we say it, it goes uncontested. It goes without explanation. Who's going to argue? It sounds so right. Driving home later, I was thinking about our conversation. And I, I, I mean, we said all the right things. We said we need to love difficult people. We said that love can be hard. We said that love is the right thing to do. But it didn't change anything. Love, like many things in this life, has become a cliche. 
an overused idea that has very few teeth. The idea that love is all we need isn't incorrect. It's just misunderstood. Let me say that that again. It's not incorrect to say that love is all we need, but we need to understand what we mean when we say it. And it's easy to get frustrated with ideas that we don't fully understand. The problem is when we become disillusioned with them, we often abandon them. And I know many who've abandoned love, at least their understanding of it. People have abandoned loving others, loving themselves, and loving God. Once again, without the right tools, even the simplest things can be frustrating. And this is where I think we can do a better job of not only talking about love, but understanding it. Because I've come to believe that love isn't merely a tool for building a better world or a better life. Love isn't merely a tool that we use to repair broken relationships with others, with God. No, I've come to discover that love isn't a tool at all. Instead, it's meant to be the toolbox. Love holds an endless supply of ways of holding, building, and repairing. Pain, suffering, loss, joy, happiness, and faith. These are the things that love is up to. Holding, repairing, building these things. Love is the category, not just the subject. Love is the toolbox, not just the tool. And I think for many of us, it's just never been opened. Now let's just pause on that for for a minute, that thought, that idea. Because I think the idea fundamentally desires to change the way we think about love, and most importantly, the way we talk about love. Because it has become cliche in our world. Whether we're talking about loving our neighbor, loving ourselves, loving difficult people, or the way we talk about loving God, what do we mean when we drop that four-letter word? We often don't have to explain it because the cliche comes with all kinds of assumptions. But I wonder if we actually have been using the word wrong. The Apostle Paul writes an amazing letter that helps offer some insight into looking at love as a means as well as an ends. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, it's the whole chapter 13. It's quite popular. In fact, it's often become cliche in its use. Most of the time we hear chapter 13 read, we are dressed up. Um, When we hear it, it's because it's a very popular wedding passage. But don't let its beauty and poetic description numb you from the big idea that Paul is proposing here. In the previous couple of chapters, in chapter 11, Paul describes how diverse the community of faith is, and how that diversity is not only beautiful, but intended. It is diverse not only because of different ethnicities, but also religious experiences and spiritual gifts. We are not all the same, but we work together. We, in our diversity, create something so magnificent when we not only respect each other, but work together. Each of our different gifts contributing to something that wouldn't have previously existed. It's truly miraculous, and it comes all together as we use our spiritual gifts that we've been given to help us create and mobilize this diverse new family of those who choose to follow the ways of Jesus. And the world is blessed because of it. 
It's all very encouraging, this letter, and it's inspirational. And as you read chapter 11 and chapter 12, it's building, this incredible intensity is building in this letter. And and people, even me, 2,000 years later, you're getting excited. Where is he going with this? And then he ends chapter 12, verse 31. It's the last verse of the chapter, just before what we know as chapter 13, the love chapter. This is how he introduces a love chapter. He says, now I will show you the most excellent way. Remember, this is just after talking about how our diversity is building something beautiful, how we have these beautiful gifts that God gives us to work together. And it's amazing. And then he says, and you thought that was good. I want to show you the most excellent way. Now that word excellent comes from the Greek word hyperbole. It's where we get the word hyperbole. We use it as, as a term that describes something that is over the top. And Paul is saying, now let me show you something that's going to blow your minds. Now, work with me here. We've heard, we've heard this verse, or these verses, this, this chapter 13 so many times. I want you to picture something. This is how I'm choosing to picture this. I picture Paul saying, now let me show you something that is absolutely incredible. And he pulls out a box. And he's holding it as he speaks. Picture it in your mind. Then in the first few verses of chapter 13, Paul begins reminding his readers that they could speak in the tongues of angels and men. But if they don't have what I hold in my hands here, then you're speaking nothing but noise. Well, man, he's already got us. Okay, Paul, what is it? Just tell us what it is. But he drags on. This is Paul, right? He writes long letters. (laughs) He says, if you have the gift of prophecy and you can fathom all the mysteries of the world and even have a Netflix miniseries, if you have the faith that can move mountains and you can wear a white suit and knock people over by blowing on them, who cares? If you don't have what I hold in my hands here, it's as ridiculous as it looks. Okay, Paul. I got it. You've already got us. You're preaching to the choir here. Just get to it. What is it? But then he goes on. Of course, if he's going to share a way that is over the top, how he shares it will be over the top too. And it is. If you give everything to the poor, he says, and even give your body to hardship so that you can boast of your generosity, it's like trash. You've gotten nowhere without what I am holding. And finally, I picture him holding up this box that is labeled love. Without love, all of those endeavors, no matter how noble or prestigious they may seem, are meaningless. They are a chasing after the wind, as Solomon would say. And Paul says that love is the greatest way that we should seek. It is the way that is over the top. It is, it is the, the, the gift that we should all desire to use. But Paul doesn't leave it here to become a cliche. He then opens the box to show us what's inside. And this is the part where we in the modern world fail. Our bumper stickers and t-shirts agree that love is the greatest way. The Beatles and Huey Lewis have all sung about it in the 80s and 90s and Everyone's singing about it now, but I think Paul reveals that love is a gift. It's a toolbox that, when opened, reveals all kinds of gestures that embody the heart of love, which is the heart of God. The list is incredible and intriguing. 
in chapter 13. Reading it stirs the heart with hope, not only because of our ability to use these tools to build and repair, but the longing comes from our hope and desire that others may use them in relationship with us. Here's what Paul describes is in this toolbox he holds called love. He says, love looks like patience. Love looks like kindness. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It looks like humility. It does not dishonor others. It gives honor to others. It is not self-seeking. It looks like caring. It is not easily angered. It looks like peace. It, It keeps no record of wrongs. Love looks like forgiveness. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Love protects, it trusts, it always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails, Paul writes. These are the tools of love. This is what love looks like when it's expressed, is what Paul is saying. I think it's important for us to realize that this is what love looks like when we hold it in our hands. It looks like patience, kindness, humility, forgiveness, trust, hope, perseverance. These are the tools of love that we use to build and repair. But inside the box, they are useless. I think an important idea for me, especially seeing the incredible diversity in the ways that love can be expressed, is that these are ways that true love desires to work and that it applies to all relationships we find ourselves in. But love doesn't always get what love wants. We know that. There are many things to distract and hijack love from its intended desire, union, and harmony that we know. And we we understand that. We've all been on that end of love that, that seems to be at an impasse. And for the most part, many of these ideas that Paul shares with us, we don't believe in it anymore. Not because they aren't true, but because perhaps either we've never experienced them or they seem unattainable or we've tried them and they didn't bring about the desired outcome. Oh, I've tried patience. Uh, tried it. Tried kindness. Nope. I tried forgiveness. Yeah, no, not going to work. You know, we try, we try these things and then we abandon them. We abandon the whole endeavor and we rack it up as a learning experience. And I think this seemingly endless list of gestures that Paul gives us of ways that love can be expressed is a clue to something bigger. I want us to consider for a moment that perhaps these tools are a catalyst to begin movement in our relationship that maybe is at a standstill. Some of these gestures that Paul lists actually work together in tandem with others. That's how tools work. When one or two of them get together, they kind of have gesture babies. Well, it's love after all. This is what happens. If you begin to practice the one, it often desires to lead to the others and something begins to grow. Let me give you an example. Patience by itself can be a difficult thing, but patience practiced with kindness produces something entirely new. Forgiveness can be very hard in certain situations, but practiced with hope and patience is perhaps the right tools for the job. And the job might not be repairing. It might be building something altogether new. What if exercising patience could cause you to consider other things? A kind word might elicit a kind response or a new behavior, being humble, 
actually elevates others, which may make them feel better about themselves, and that alone may create an avalanche of new things. I also believe that these are clues to learning how to love difficult people. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone, I get it. Then consider that might not be the tool to start with. Perhaps kindness is easier to hold. And you can begin to build something smaller with it. If you're having a hard time being patient, maybe start with humility. If you're having a hard time with trust, maybe start with hope. You see, often when we struggle with one gesture, we abandon the whole pursuit. But love is not limited to just forgiveness or patience or kindness. It includes them, but isn't limited to them. Our entry point to loving others might need to be a side door or a window when the front door seems slammed shut. So next time you're impatient with somebody who's being difficult, humble yourself and ask why it needs to be done your way. The next time you're struggling with trusting somebody, begin with the hope that one day you may. The next time you're struggling with someone who you can't seem to forgive, begin with kindness to yourself first, and then maybe to them. So when you say you love somebody, or thinking of ways to show someone you love them, remember to open the toolbox. There's so much to choose from. And what you can begin to build or repair is endless. So open it up. Lose the lid. Let the gestures of love turn into postures. Let the individual motions combine into a beautiful dance. And realize that love is not a singular act, but the culmination of many.